Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. Over the past century, biologists have set up a series of long-term study populations, where all individuals within a population are monitored both across their own lifespan and also over many generations. But what's the point of this? I'm Joe Woodman, a biology PhD student in the Edward Gray Institute of Field Ornithology. And today I'll be talking to Professor Ben Sheldon, FRS, who has studied evolution and ecology throughout his academic career and runs a long-term study population here in Oxford. Thanks very much for coming on, Ben. Um, so to begin with, can you explain what a long-term study population is and how they start in the first place? So, I mean, that's a good question. What, when does a study become a long-term study? Um, and do people know when they're starting them that they're going to be long-term studies? And I think the answer to that, the last question is, probably no one knows that they're starting a long-term study and, until the continuity of what you're doing becomes one of the over, overwhelming kind of, you know, overwhelmingly important things of, of the sort of science that you're doing. And, you know, what constitutes a long-term study? And I think, yeah, typically I would say probably we're talking about seven, eight-plus generations of whatever species it is that you're studying of course for different organisms that means different lengths of time so for small short-lived birds that's not much more than seven or eight years if you're studying you know long-lived mammals then you're talking about decades already kind of like an interesting point i guess there what you're saying about these like depends on the species so historically i guess speaking have there been any kind of particular biases towards certain species you think and, and is that kind of a remnant of the fact that you choose a, a shorter lived species and therefore it's yeah. easier to attain the long-term status yeah i mean i think i think this the, there's definitely a uh, an issue of of sort of bias which i think is one is a something that fields often have to think hard about and in this case the the first long-term studies that were started were of birds because the mechanisms to mark them as individuals were already worked out there, and that's kind of easy an easy thing to do with birds compared to some other organisms. Then I guess it was typically studies of primates, which are, because they're diurnal, so they're daytime active, just like we are, um, in some sense it was easier to observe them doing the things that are important to them while it was light. Um, and I think it's, you know, in, in more recent times... You know, genetic techniques have become available which allow us to study a wider range of, um, of of species and you know I think other techniques as well involving you know different kinds of electronic tags and markers also open up other possibilities but for sure there's been a sort of um, I think an initial bias based on what was it's, it's, it's totally determined by what's possible really I mean it's um, yeah, at the heart of these long-term studies is a very simple concept that it's about knowing um, the identity of individuals and understanding how those individuals interact with each other and, and you know how long they live and, and so on um, so you have to have a way to identify those individuals and in some systems you could see how that could be really difficult I mean if you're studying a you know a nocturnal aquatic organism how do you actually track individuals around if you haven't got daylight they're underwater all these things so so you know, it's uh, you know, in comparison to a, a, a day active um, terrestrial organism right, like a bird, um, and I think there's also. I mean, I would say that it's often said that you know, a lot of what we know about ecology and evolution is based on you know studies in um, North America and, and, and Europe. Um, lo- the long term study field is one that has traditionally actually been a bit wider than that because 
quite a lot of the classic long-term studies have also been done in the tropics. So there's studies in certainly in, in many parts of uh, of Africa and Asia, as well as Europe and North America and and in Australasia as well. So actually, the geographically they're fairly they're more widespread. Although um, yeah, there are still gaps that we would need to fill. A lot of the things you're saying there in terms of yeah the species that we study in these long terms in these long term populations it's quite often maybe for like lack of a better term kind of like easier I guess for scientists to study in a sense um, due to like certain restrictions. So, do you think it's fair to say that some of these long term studies don't actually start with specific hypotheses or questions in mind and maybe even are just kind of you know even a hobby or something or like you can. Yeah, there's lots yeah. of kind of like no, naturalists study something. Yeah, I, w- I think I wouldn't agree with that because I think actually I think probably each of them has been founded by someone who had a particular question. They picked a system because it offered an opportunity to understand that question. And I mean, you know, some of them are founded so long ago that the questions they were asking seem you know, almost kind of you know too elementary to be interesting. But that's because you know those things have now been so well established. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think probably it's the case that each of them has been started with a very specific scientific goal in mind and then it's often become apparent that actually um, this system allows you to answer other questions as well. That's definitely something you know going to more in terms of kind of starting with this idea and then building on new ideas as, as time goes on. So a lot of biology it's um, you know you, you kind of have a question in mind and you'll design an experiment and then you'll do that experiment and that's you're kind of using that design to try and answer your question so what do you think that long-term studies allow scientists to do which can't be achieved through that alternative method of kind of designing your own your own experiment and, and going through that yeah I mean that's that's a that's a good question and, and I think I, I think what I would say is that there are there are different there are different ways of doing science in some sense if you say that one approach to science is about testing hypotheses experiments are one way to test them another way is to make predictions about existing systems and see whether they conform to those predictions so so, um and that's not to be not to sort of um denigrate the actually the importance of descriptive science which um you know actually is uh without descriptions of things in a sense we've got nothing to explain right we we need to sort of have that information as well so so yeah. what 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 do you mean by dis- descriptive science in that sense then well i mean you could say um you know for example the distribution of species in space and time is fundamentally a descriptive thing right you know so which species are where and and there are whole fields that that aim to understand that and and so there are people who collect that kind of data and sometimes it's it's kind of slightly looked down on as you know people say it's the equivalent of stamp collecting okay. um, but actually you know if we want to understand large scale things about the way that organisms distribute themselves in the world you know the way, the way that determines why we find give an example why is it that we find more species in the tropics mm-hmm. than at the poles I mean that's a, you know, such an obvious pattern that we all know about um, but why is that why should it be that way you know why shouldn't species be evenly spread and of course there are lots of ideas to explain that but but you know that's not something which you could have attempted to sort of you know even explain if someone hadn't gone out and collected data on where plants are and where butterflies are and where beetles are and where birds are and where mammals are so so descriptive science is that's one kind of descriptive science that's extremely important for enabling us to to know which what the, what the state of the world is so i guess moving on to kind of um more specifics so you study the kind of the long-term population of breeding birds in in woodland just outside of oxford can you well maybe to begin with actually could you give us like a few more details 
about that that study. Yeah, so what you're talking about is the um, the study of um, it's particularly the great tit. Since the 1940s, there's been quite a lot of sort of ecological work going on in Whiteham Woods, and one of the studies that started in 1947 was a population study of the great tit. It's continued ever since, so it's now in its 75th year. You know, and what that study has done is basically um, to follow that population at the level of individual birds throughout their lives. So they're, they're marked, ringed as nestlings or as, as adults the first time they're caught. And then you can track them as individuals throughout their lives. And one of the nice things about birds is that because the, both parents attend the young, you can then link together parents and their offspring. Um, so you've got the ability to link across generations very easily. When the study started, it was really at a time when there were all some very basic things about populations that people didn't understand. You know, how long do, how long does the average individual live? How many times does it breed? How far does it move from year to year? How far does its offspring move? These kinds of things. Um, and so the, the study was started by a man called David Lack, who was interested in those kinds of questions. Um, and was looking for a model system to do that kind of work on. Of course, the kind of questions it's addressed have evolved over time. Um, it didn't didn't take 75 years to work out you know, how long great tits live, but you know, there are many other facets to uh, the population study that, that we can study over that time. So you've given you kind of gave an idea of the breadth of data in terms of, um, like you said, it's in the, in the 75th year now. So how long does this species? How long does a great tit? live for so what, what is that you know how many generations are there i suppose is is the question because at the beginning you were saying about the long-term yeah. data kind of long-term study populations it depends on the generation time of the of the focal species so yeah i mean it's, it's a sort of um yeah how long is it great to live for I, it's, it's a slightly hard thing to answer in sort of one number because there's two ways to look at this you could say what's the maximum lifespan of a great tit and I think the longest we have in our data is, is nine years, but that's very much an exception. Most great tits actually only breed, the most common thing is that they only breed once. Um, so one way of looking at it is to say, for an individual great tit, what's the chances it's alive to next year? And roughly speaking, it's about 50%, so it's like tossing a coin. So yeah, so most great tits only live, only live and breed once if they get to breed at all. Actually, you could say that most great tits don't even breed at all because um, the great tits uh, lay quite large clutches of eggs. So each female each year will lay somewhere you know, around eight or nine eggs. So actually, if you go back to the nestling stage, you can say the average great tit actually only lives a few months. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, it's it's a it's like one of those things you sort of you probably wish you never asked yeah. that question because there's lots of ways of looking at it. I guess it's the case with every question you ask yeah. from a long-term study perspective. Yeah. There are so many. Yeah. 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 But this is one of the nice things is that it it, it sort of illustrates. That actually, there's there's many ways to 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 answer a question. I suppose the kind of the, the reason I asked is like when you're mentioning it at the beginning, it, to, it depends what species you're studying in terms of it to be kind of become a long a long term study population. If we were to say, you know, this this study population in Whiteham Woods is actually not of great tits, and it's in a hypothetical world, it's of um, some sort of large large mammal population. How yeah. how long would you need? to have that study to kind of have the same yeah. information on the amount of generations there are in Whiteham? Well, yeah, good question. And actually, I'm going to say it's even more complex there because it would depend on whether you're interested in male generations or female generations. So let's say red deer, for example, which actually there is a, a beautiful long-term study population of red deer on down the rum in the Inner Hebrides. So there, the um, female lifespan is actually longer than male lifespan. And that sex difference there is a really interesting thing. Actually, not something we see in birds. They're much more similar in, in the in the birds. Um, 
So yeah, yet again, a complexity <laughs> there that depends on which sex you're asking about. But anyway, we're talking about probably getting on for um, you know a couple of hundred years at least to have the same depth of data. So do we know the longest lineage, for example, in, in Whiteham? Do we know how many generations? Because it's hard to say clearly, as you've have you explained, the kind of average generation, but we don't. Yeah. Do we know how many generations there have been in, in one lineage, for example? Yeah, so I think the longest lineage that we can trace is, I think, 35 generations at the moment. So um, so that just happens to be a bird that can be tracked back to one sometime in the 1950s. I suppose when you kind of like begin to contextualise that into humans, for example, that's that's quite crazy because 35 it doesn't you know necessarily sound amazing but then if you imagine adding you know great 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 however many times grandmother go back for those many generations in humans that's um that's quite amazing yeah i think that would probably be the equivalent of having a family tree traced back to certainly pre-norman conquest days in 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 britain so you know back to perhaps eight or nine hundred ad and I, i don't know if there are any human lineages that we can trace that far back okay um, there may be but um yeah it would be pretty unusual yeah it's amazing um yeah so you mentioned kind of how the the themes that you study might change a little bit over time so has there been a clear pattern of that in whiten would you say since the since the study began in the in the 1940s yeah i mean i think there's there's lots of themes one, one could draw out and i think the um at various times as people have become interested in scientific subjects in biology they've realized that this population gives you access to those so in the late 60s um, I think the the role of behavior in in biology um, was becoming ever more prominent so in the 1960s quite a sort of vigorous theme of behavioral research began in in white and woods so people trying to understand things like uh, often it was with a sort of ecological flavor so for example the classic bit of work done by john krebs so how territoriality which is you know the behavior of excluding other individuals from a space how that acts to regulate populations so you could say if you think of the initial the study originated understanding population biology well now so krebs was trying to ask about how behavior contributes to that i would think in the 1980s probably people first started to think about genetics in different ways um you know thinking about inheritance of characters using the long-term relationships between individuals but also you know that at that time it became possible to you know to look at dna variation um directly and then i think from the probably 1990s onwards um you know, we were seeing big changes in the world that were being driven by human activity and actually understanding the biological basis of those changes you needed actually data that allowed you to look at systems before during and after changes had happened and that long-term studies gave you a a particularly interesting way of doing that Um, and so the the the, the classic case for example is you know that we've we've understood that seasonal events particularly in the spring for example and the timing of those has shifted um, over recent decades and it just happens that one of the events that's really important in the lives of the birds that we study in white and the great tits is, is when they lay their eggs um, and we've been able to do quite a bit of work looking at how that's shifted over time and what the mechanisms behind that shift are. It kind of seems to me a little bit then like what you're saying is there's kind of these emergent ideas or themes in biology or science and the role of long-term study populations in that is that they've kind of just 
tick on, I suppose, in the way that data is being collected. And as these themes emerge out of biology or science, broadly speaking, the data kind of exists there and complements these emerging themes in the way that you kind of have existing data that you can use. Is, is that fair to say or is that is that an oversimplification? Yeah, often it's the case. And, and, I, and I absolutely am not saying that they're suitable for all questions. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you're, if your questions are about kind of um, large scale patterns, you know, like sort of global patterns, then these studies are not what you want to be doing. Um, but it, it is surprising how often um, having you know, the, the kind of fairly deep sort of grounding of understanding of one system enables you to answer new questions as they emerge. So you could say in some sense they're a valuable scientific resource because they're often going to be useful. And then and the thing that I and other people who've been involved in these studies have, have point we've tried to make several times is that you know the people who founded these studies didn't know that we were going to have you know a climate crisis um, where we'd be interested in understanding biological responses to that when they started them um, it's useful that we had these things there um, it would be crazy for me to try and predict what scientific questions we will be thinking about in you know 20 years time I mean I, I could have a go at it and you know, five years time or ten years time I'd probably be wrong anyway but but you know I would going beyond that is just sort of um, I think uh, not not sensible that, you know, <laughs> there's, there's many examples of people making long-term predictions that turn out to be so wildly wrong so okay, um, yeah yeah well that, that kind of leads me on to the, the kind of this last bit because we're beginning to run out of time but um, I guess <laughs> you've just said basically that you you wouldn't want to make any sort of wild predictions but I'm going to go against that now and basically ask you that. So what do you think the kind of future of long-term studies, both generally and kind of specifically is? So we spoke a little bit at the beginning about biases in in the ones that currently exist. So do you think new ones need to exist? And then alongside that, the ones that currently exist, what directions do you think they need to go into? Yeah, I mean, really good questions. Um, You know, I think think there's one of the... The sort of weaknesses so one of the weaknesses and criticisms of these kinds of studies is that yeah it's it's very hard to do experiments and often that people guard you know guard these long-term studies against experimental perturbation because you know, if you do an experiment and it changes the system well then you know can you still use it in the way that you did and, and we could spend a long time discussing that question um, so you know what would be wonderful would be if we could do sort of take the amazing sort of toolkits that we've got for studying Drosophila, the fruit flies, and apply that to um, to kind of one of the great it's one of the great laboratory models of biology. And, and you know these days we can do remarkable sort of you know precise manipulations of um, you know the genetic genetic code in Drosophila, and, and we can study their neurobiology and so on. But we know still pretty little actually about comparatively about their biology in the wild, right? Um, okay. But that's because you can't you can't put rings on Drosophila. Yeah. But the methods to track them, that would be it would be wonderful to develop those kinds of systems where you could then really do experimental manipulations mm-hmm. and, and um, I suppose in the in the existing ones that was also your question is what to do with the existing ones what should they be doing um, I think there's a uh, questions about the scale at which processes operate which have been ignored for too long so we've tended to think about populations as being you know, one homogenous kind of set of individuals. Um, actually, they experience the environment very differently, probably because of spatial differences in the environment. And and the, we've now got the ability to kind of characterise the environment in much greater detail. So things like remote sensing, you know, 
either using satellites or drones or, or other kinds of monitoring. I think we that will tell us a lot more about that. What's what are the key processes driving variation in those populations in, in ways that we've not really understood in the past. Um, and I think the third, you know, there's this in, potential incredible richness of data about individuals that we can get from using sort of advances in biologging, um, which is when you're measuring you're measuring things on free-ranging animals. And, and you know, there could be position, but actually these days we could also measure you know, their heart rate or their temperature or aspects of their physiology. Rather than just thinking of this animal as something that, you know, was born here and it died here and it had four offspring here, actually, you know, this is an animal that experiences the world every second of its life. Yeah. Um, the ability to kind of measure it at that level of complexity is starting to become available to us. What I've described to you are technological advances, right, rather than conceptual advances. Mm-hmm. Um, I generally don't know what the kind of the big, you know, the next big kind of conceptual advance will be, right? I mean, that is one of the surprises of science is that something will come along probably. And yeah, you know, and I guess there's 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 no major issue with that because presumably when the when the study began in Whiteham, a lot of the advances that have been made here in the in the, in this system were completely unbeknown. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for um. Thanks for chatting through that. It's been really interesting. Okay, thank you. Very nice to do that. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk. Thank you.